Educated Thoughts presented by Prescouter, where we have short discussions on big ideas in healthcare. I'm Jeremy Schmerer, and I'm joined by Dr. Ryan LaRanger and Dr. Michael Boot. Today, we're talking about infectious disease, which effectively has dominated the headlines for about the last 18 months as we've faced the COVID-19 pandemic. With so many viruses, bacteria, fungi, and parasites out there, there are a lot of directions we can go here. So Michael, perhaps you can start by giving us a broad perspective and also highlight how infectious disease uh, are born and how they become dangerous. I would be very happy to. Um, and thanks for inviting me um, on your podcast. And um, yeah, so I guess how in infectious diseases are born is, is really a, a great question. Um, and one that I think science hasn't really been able to answer in all cases. I think a good example of that is, is the COVID pandemic that suddenly, um, seemingly out of the blue, happened uh, and, and hit us like a wave. While in real reality, what we know is that these infectious diseases are among us. Some of them are persistently among us. Um, you can think of tuberculosis. There's other infectious diseases such as flu that everyone knows that are periodically among us. But there's also what we call um, opportunistic pathogens, um, as well as things like SARS-CoV-2 that really come out of seemingly nowhere. Um, I think a good way to put this is thinking of infectious disease as having a certain host or reservoir. And especially if we look at the current state of the world um, as we got here, we noticed that this infectious disease came from a reservoir that we didn't really know existed. Um, and that is really where these um, infectious diseases are born to begin with. And what then usually happens is when these diseases are brought into contact with human hosts, they get a chance to infect, adapt, and potentially spread amongst humans. Um, and yeah, the rest, I would say, is in this case, uh, history for, for this pandemic. Ryan, why don't, why don't you pick up where, where he left off and tell us about prediction and detection and things of that nature? So first of all, I want to bring up, <laughs> it's one of my favorite older books, uh, it's, oh gosh, darn it, I'm forgetting the name of it. But it brings up this idea of the uh, triangle of disease, right? Because if you think about it, the less well adapted a disease is or a pathogen is to a patient, the more dangerous it is, right? It's when you have the spread from uh, animal to human, that's where it's really dangerous because it's not well adapted. You know, the, the diseases that are really well adapted to humans generally speaking, don't cause, you know, death, because obviously that's not good for that pathogen, right? So it's when you see major disruptions in sort of local ecologies, right? A forest gets knocked down. Um, you start seeing humans close to way too many animals or a bunch of animals die. Uh, these kinds of events are often the uh, initiating factor in particularly bad new diseases transferring over to humans. Right, so I just wanted to touch on that first. Um, another point, which is really interesting, at least I think it's interesting, is public health groups in the face of COVID and so on have gotten very, very sophisticated at tracking where diseases are happening, right? Is that detection is a huge part of controlling infectious disease. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is wastewater testing. So, uh, not to be too crude, uh, you can test sewage 
in a given area, a neighborhood, so you have someone basically in a you know big protective suit climbing down into the sewers, taking a sample of wastewater, and uh, they'll test it, and you can actually see traces of things like uh, SARS-CoV-2, other pathogens, COVID, by way of example. And that gives you a sense of, in an area, where is this disease existing? And this is actually proven to be very effective as a public health measure. Are you drawing a, a correlation between infrastructure and infectious disease? Is that pretty much oh, what I'm hearing? They're all related, right? It's public health. It's as soon as when you start talking about infectious disease, um, it's almost impossible to separate policy and regulation and frankly, economics and the science. I mean, this gets us to the whole antibiotics thing, right? And I'm sure we can talk about that in a moment because that's another one of my huge frustrations. But uh, just in terms of detection, another thing worth noting is, uh, and Michael can speak to this, I'm sure, uh, there's, so there has been work done where you take tests from multiple patients, you pool all of those samples, and then you run, say, a COVID test on that pooled sample. Now, what this allows you to do is you can't pick out then who has it, but it allows you to rapidly exclude populations in your sort of further testing where you're not seeing it. It's all about being economical with what you have because you're almost always heavily resource constrained when you're dealing with these kinds of public health things. Yeah, I just want to emphasize the two points you made because I think there's there's a lot there in terms of infectious diseases that are usually very obnoxiously infecting people because they're poorly adapted, such as Ebola, versus diseases that have had the chance to evolve within humans. HIV, tuberculosis are good examples of those. They present you with a very different problem in terms of public health because what you can see is that the need for detecting those second class of diseases, the ones that are able to spread amongst people pretty widely and easily without raising too many alarm flags, such as Ebola, really pushes you to having to develop diagnostic assays that can screen large populations. And the less symptoms there are, the more important it becomes to actually screen at large scale. And I think the first, um, this is actually the first time um, that, that this type of testing that you mentioned, the pool testing, and really people think about testing at schools, at airports, has come off the ground. Um, and so I think we're in a revolutionary point in history where we are starting to accept that diagnostic testing for infectious diseases is becoming something that is a very valuable tool to contain in our world where we want to travel everywhere and infectious disease. So, Michael, one thing to come back to there, you talked about, you know, the fact that we've got these diagnostic tools and, and the detection is, of course, important as we lack the knowledge on, on these viruses or these outbreaks. What are some of the innovations and new technologies or um, updates or things that are occurring in the diagnostic space that might play well here? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I, th I think everyone's favorite technology, um, sort of the golden standard, as you, as you may say, is, is typically PCR. Um, this is something you can use across infectious diseases. It doesn't really matter where the disease is located as long as you can get a sample that has the pathogen. So in this case, you can think of a respiratory virus, 
that you can find in someone's throat or someone's um, nasal cavity versus a, a pathogen that might be in blood. Um, so that's sort of a, a go-to technology that people have been using. Um, but what we see now is that for very specific diseases such as coronavirus, where there is a big need for other types of diagnostics and fast diagnostics, you see that one of the innovations that came, um, came around this, um, this pandemic was using saliva, for instance, as one of our main samples to do diagnostics on. And you can really see the benefit there of using saliva is if you wanna screen a large population of people, you can't really go about having healthcare professionals draw blood every day, but you can imagine giving someone a tube and ask them to produce a saliva sample. So that's one of the major, um, the major innovations I think has, has been happening. Um, small point there and small disclaimer is that, as I said, this may not be a successful sample for all infectious disease. So it could be disease specific. On the other hand, one other innovation, I guess, to highlight is the use of next generation sequencing approaches to identify at large scale from pools of samples um, infections, much to as what Ryan was mentioning. So really trying to scale up the amount of samples that go into a certain analysis to make it economically attractive. Um, and so that's another, um, another new feature of the diagnostic space. So then uh, I just want to mention one other thing, because we only have so much time and I'd feel terrible if I didn't bring it up. Uh, it's the idea of antibiotic resistance and how there are completely non-science forces, which make it very difficult to develop new antibiotics, which also touches on uh, a sort of regulatory innovation that have made the development of new vaccines so much easier. So one of the things that's made the push to develop the COVID vaccine so different and frankly ridiculous and very effective is that uh, governments were willing to buy doses of the vaccine before they were approved. They said, you know, we understand this is an upfront cost and it is a risk, but it is a risk that we are absolute. It is a risk we are willing to take uh, because that's the only way we're going to get this right. So the government spent a lot of money and it turned out to be an incredibly valuable investment, right? Totally paid off as far as we can tell, right? It's if you actually ran the numbers, it would be nuts. And this sort of approach could be applied to a really big problem that we have, which is antibiotic resistance, right? Uh, this is a thing, it has been on the news recently, but it's on the news relatively frequently. Uh, this idea that bacterial pathogens, which can be incredibly dangerous, are getting resistant to more and more antibiotics, necessitating us using more and more intense antibiotics. Now, the question that's existed for a while is why aren't people generating new antibiotics. Uh, the reason is remarkably simple. Competing against penicillin is terrible, <laughs> right? It's, it's relatively safe. It's relatively effective. It works on lots of uh, bacteria. It, uh, it is very difficult for uh, someone from a sort of business strategy perspective to say, we're going to develop an antibiotic. We're going to spend 10 years and a billion dollars developing something that is probably going to be uh, effective uh, on a small number of, you know, omni-resistant bacteria, and will have to spend the rest of its functional life competing against penicillin and other antibiotics. Like that's, that's hard, right? But let's say governments decided, you know what, 
uh, antibiotic resistance is a huge problem. It's getting worse. Let's put in a big upfront cost and make it worth a company's while to make that new antibiotic. Then there might be more pull and more interest in doing it. Uh, that was a little bit of a rant. Michael, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, no, I, I think you, you, you have it right. I, I think the biggest challenge is even, even in cases where they're not competing with penicillin because of resistance, mm -hmm. the point you make is, is still true. The, the upfront costs for a company to develop antibiotics are in the billions. And the revenues, and this is something I, I, I know uh, because I, I worked in this field, um, are uh, close to about 40 to 60 million US dollars a year. So that's nowhere yeah. near the investment. And so I've seen two ways of, of um, governments going about this. One is the Netflix model they're thinking about hasn't been implemented, where someone would have a subscription, much like with the vaccines where you buy before it's being produced or manufactured, you subscribe to having the availability of a certain antibiotic. Um, that's that's sort of the, the the dream approach, I guess, also for pharmaceutical industry. Mm -hmm. But what has been done is sort of an intermediate, um, where not only companies are carrying the costs, but also large research initiatives, where there's a mixture of different pharma companies, a mixture of different academic institutes. They're funded by, for instance, the EU or US government, and they carry part of the cost. Each and everyone has a piece and co-develop these antibiotics. And this is a very interesting approach because it mitigates some of the risk of investment. But the big challenge there is the speed at which these things get carried through. Right. And the major question is, who's going to get the rights to the antibiotic if there's four pharma companies involved? Interesting. So it sounds like if, if it becomes a big enough deal and enough people are interested uh, financially and to put their hat in the ring, a lot can happen. But I think, as you kind of alluded to, Michael, you get to a point where the virus or the disease has spread so much and the time it takes to coordinate all of these efforts is, is potentially holding us back. Now, any other thoughts on this space before we wrap up? Ryan, we'll come back to you first. Anything else you'd like to add? I just, my head is swimming with the idea of the Netflix of drug development now. And <laughs> I, just, I want that to work. But huh, yeah, I, it's just so many of these problems, there's a scientific element to them. But at this stage, a lot of it is about finding public will and innovating around business models that work, right? Fi finding the use case, finding the value proposition and making it happen. Michael, anything else? No, I, I think sort of the, the one line summary is, is the, the cure for infectious diseases or whether it's, it's treatment or whether it's diagnosing um, is unfortunately money. Right on, right on. Money runs the world, I guess, so in, in, in some ways. <laughs> a little, a little. Uh, okay. Well, guys, we're going to say that's a wrap for today. I uh, hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you're not subscribing already, find us on wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, join us again for you know our next discussion on cardiology. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>